I will always cherish the original misconception I had of you. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy shit shows. I've never used ahoy before. I like a good ahoy. I like a good pirate. Actually, if I'm going to say ahoy, I I better have really put some more into it, right? Like, ahoy! That That sounds horrible. Ahoy shit shows. Is that any good? I think that was probably quite horrible. I'm going to embrace it, though. I've always had this idea of what if I started a meeting, like an AA meeting or an ACA meeting, where everyone was, it was pirate themed. Like everyone was required to talk in a, in a pirate voice and everyone was uh, required to wear a pirate outfit. What do you guys think? Maybe I could, maybe I should start doing that on the Patreon. What do you think, Patreon folks? Should we have like themes? We should. We definitely need to have a Halloween, a Zoom Halloween show. Um, moving along. So today we are diving deep with Darlene Lancer. She is a therapist. She has spent the past 30 years working with shit shows like us. She specializes in codependency. She has written over 10 books, including Codependency for Dummies and my personal fave, Conquering Shame and Codependency. And then her latest book is called Dating, Loving, and Leaving a Narcissist. Essential Tools for Improving or Leaving Narcissistic or Abusive Relationships. And so we will be talking about that in addition to many other things, as always. But first, I want to give a shout out to all my newest Patreon members. Thank you, thank you, thank you to these fabulous shit shows. Janet, Anna, Betty, Keisha, Jen, Carol, Christy, Courtney, Anne-Marie, Norma, Nicola, Leo, Brittany, Tanner, Emily, Danielle, Amy, Tony, Christy, Grace, Ramiro, Noelle, Sky, and Sarah. Thank you, thank you so very much. You guys, the Patreon is the place to be. This is the hottest club in town. This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. You get a meditation meeting on Monday, and you also get a support system in your back pocket with our WhatsApp chat. And you're really missing out on this WhatsApp chat. So I know that there are people out there who have been longtime listeners and have been wanting to join the Patreon, but they're just too scared or they keep putting it off. I know you're out there because I've had plenty of people join, told me that, that they've been longtime listeners and they had been scared to join the Patreon and they finally pulled the plug. They finally, uh, is that it? Pulled the plug? Yeah, I guess it is. So I'm talking to you, you, that person who has been listening for a while and you really want support, but you're just a little scared. How about you just do it now? How about you just sign up now? Let's just do that. Who's going to do that now? Uh, next, please give me a follow on the Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And most importantly, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple. I also know that there are plenty of listeners out there listening on Apple, that have not given me a five-star review, okay? So I'm also talking to you. Get on it. Let's do it. (laughs) And last but not least, I want to give a shout-out to Integrative Life Center. They're sponsoring the pod. Uh, This is a group of treatment centers specializing in addiction, trauma, and intimacy disorders. They have locations in Tennessee, in Mississippi, and Colorado, and they focus on treating what really matters or what's, what is at the core, which is our trauma. So check out the show notes for their website number and email. Thanks. All right, y'all. Welcome, Darlene Lancer. She is a marriage and family therapist who specializes in narcissism and codependency. She has a private practice. She coaches. She has tons of books. How many books do you have in total? 
10. 10. Yeah, wow. I had to That's... count it to be sure. <laughs> yeah, with her newest is, uh, get ready, it's a mouthful, Dating, Loving, and Leaving a Narcissist, Essential Tools for Improving or Leaving Narcissistic and Abusive Relationships. We should, we need to make an acronym out of this, you know? Uh, okay. Let's see. <laughs> Don't be less of a mouthful. Uh, we'll, we'll work on it. We'll workshop it. <laughs> VLL. I don't yeah. know. Um, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Andrea, yeah. for inviting me. I'm looking forward to uh, our second this interview chat. and yeah, and <laughs> sharing with your audience. So, yeah, you got a lot of people. Pummel that... me with questions. Oh, let's go. So, I want to start differently. I, so, first question is. What did the, I mean, I'm obviously assuming that you grew up in a dysfunctional family. So what did the dysfunction look like in your home when, when you were a child? Ah, that's a very good question. So uh, my mother was a narcissist uh, or a lot of narcissistic qualities. And my father was a workaholic and I discovered much later that in my family tree, I have uh, some great uncles and aunts that had eating disorders, uh, maybe some alcoholism Mm -hmm. on my father's side. Interestingly, there was no clue of that because my grandfather's parents were dead before I was born. But it came to me in a dream of all things. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Tell me about that. I just had a dream that my grandfather was an alcoholic. And then did you go and do research? Well, I, my father at that time had passed away, but it kind of made sense because he grew up in Connecticut and he used to resent that his, his mother worked so hard. She had to take in tenants. I mean, he was born in 1903. Wow. So this is before telephones and cars and yeah. everything we take for granted. And she had like a, I guess a wood fire burning stove. And, and he would complain that his father who worked in a hat factory would go to the cafe and just talk about politics. And uh, my father's parents were Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And so they were very interested, I guess, in the Russian revolution at that time. He used to talk. I think my grandfather was a socialist. Anyway, it dawned on me. He said they would go, his father would, after work, go sit in the cafe while his mother was slaving away, you know, uh, cooking and cleaning. And after I had that dream, I thought, there are no cafes in Connecticut, Danbury, where I grew up. It must have been a pub. So, wow. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, my mother was very controlling. And uh, did you have siblings? Yes, I had uh, a younger sister and two older brothers. And I would say that there was, you know, signs of sexual addiction in the family. What role did you play? Interesting. Uh, well, I um was first of all I was triangulated between my parents Uh and I was the eldest daughter and after two boys I was very welcome so they wanted a a girl Uh and um, I'm not sure what role I played but I felt because my brothers were much older 10 years older and eight years older that I wasn't taken seriously Uh and my mother said well you don't need a profession like your brothers, you know, Mm. just get something to fall back on. If you ever get a divorce, that kind of mindset. Yeah. A very kind of fifties, which is uh, typical that time. And, um, and then (laughs) years later, uh, my mother used to say, men only want one thing. Women want love and men want sex, you know, and men only want one thing. Uh which kind of thought was strange. But (laughs) then I found out much later that she had been molested. Uh So that kind of made sense. And then uh, it kind of made sense that it was so kind of amazing to me because years later, my one of my brothers said, 
our father said to him, women are only good for one thing. (laughs) (laughs) I guess their belief system matched. Yeah, I guess. That's true. uh, (laughs) Well, yeah, perfect match, right? So I guess there was a lot of um, contempt between the sexes. Clearly. Unspoken in my household. So, so. so a lot of the time, uh, narcissists, you know, will kind of pick a target and then they they pick like a golden child. Who did your mom take her wrath out on? Well, she would, she would, she would rotate. So, <laughs> um, you know, as when I was an adult, I think I was the only one that wouldn't kind of comply mm-hmm. and go along to get along with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried to set boundaries and that infuriated her. So I think the, the other members of the family were just, oh, of course, she had a different relationship with my brothers than she did with me. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make this all about my family. No, yeah, no, I'm just a lot of history. Yeah. But, well, uh, people, that's why I like talking about personal stories. So, um, because yeah. I could go into why and, and her history and, but and then my sister was much later. She's uh, seven years younger than me, so she was really kind of the lost child. Uh-huh. So, and I was uh-huh. kind of in the middle, but I was in the middle of a lot of um, uh, psychological dynamics that I could not understand at uh-huh. a young age. And I saw—I'll just add that I saw the movie Queen Bee with uh, Joan Crawford when I was about. Um, nine years old and I was horrified and I thought that explained everything that's because Joan Crawford in the, in the movie was you know uh, a malignant narcissist and um, very controlling and and but she was more like a caricature my mother wasn't like that but to mm-hmm. a, a child it seemed like this explained what I couldn't understand that was going on and all this uh, uh-huh. Fighting and, and manipulation and things like that that was more adult than I could grasp as a child. And I think I, after seeing that movie, I decided I hated my mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you entered uh, Al-Anon in '79. So what was the rela- talk about the relationship that brought you into Al-Anon? Yeah, I was married to a, an alcoholic. So that uh, sent me to Al-Anon. And in the be- beginning, I thought, why am, why am I going? You know, he's the one with the problems. So it took me a long time to realize that I had to work on myself. I don't think I really started to do that in earnest for several years. Yeah, what, I, what I'm happy to see is that people, because of the internet and maybe just because people pass on their, their knowledge, uh, people are catching on to things much faster. Uh, yeah. No one yeah. talked about mention the word trauma at meetings or domestic violence or PTSD or intimacy issues. It really wasn't discussed. Uh, and emotional uh, abuse was, you know, not really even considered abuse in those mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. So the laws have changed since also. So, uh, yeah, because that was right around the time that ACA started was like late 70s, early 80s was when. Uh Yeah. Yeah. So people are changing and healing much more quickly. So there was I was uh, isolated a lot, which is one of the things I say to people. If you two things, if you think you're being abused, you probably are. And number two, (laughs) don't isolate. Don't be afraid to share it because. Uh, it's typical that people want to hide uh, the fact of abuse. It's humiliating, you know, what's humiliating to me. And, uh, but that's the only way that you can get help is to uh, reach out to resources. And that's one of the benefits of the internet, that there's so uh-huh. much information that was nev- not available when I was, uh, and I got married very young, so. 
The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And so then you say that at a, at a certain point, you then walk away from the relationship. How long were you in Al-Anon before you divorced? Let's see. Um, I went in 80, about 10 years, actually. 10 years. Wow. Yeah, and nine, were you like working a program the whole time? Nine years. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then I got into therapy too, which really made a difference. And then, so then you talk about though, that, uh, when, when was it that you then had the like pivotal aha moment that you had regarding your internalized shame? Cause you didn't really have that recognition until post-divorce, right? Oh, I don't even remember. It was decades ago. Um, I had a dream that, uh, said that, a woman named Shane was in bed with me, and uh, I didn't want to know her. <laughs> I wanted her to kick her out of the bed. So I understood what the dream meant, and around that time, I entered psychoanalysis and did a, lo- a lot of work on that. I'll just throw out, since we're, you're talking about, you know, the 70s. At one point, I was very, uh, very unhappy in my marriage, and which, by the way, included uh, domestic violence. And I had just read the book, Women Who Love Too Much. And I went to see, um, can't think of the name of the author at the moment, but I went to see her. And I said, do you think I should leave? And of course, being a good therapist, she didn't give me tell me her opinion. Uh, <laughs> So I I stayed in the relationship a few more years after that. I was kind of on the fence because I had young children too. So it takes what it takes, you know. Yep. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Yeah, you said you did. What did you say? You did psychoanalysis. I was going to ask that. What did healing look like for you? Well, uh, one example is um, I guess typical of. Uh, many codependents, if they're called out for being self-centered, they would maybe experience shame because Mm -hmm. the typical codependent wants to be all loving and all giving to other people and have them like, like them. And my mother would always tell me that I was selfish and inconsiderate which is a common thing that narcissists say when they don't get their way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was out to dinner with a friend and I was troubled about uh, something that had just happened and very upset about it. And I started talking about it with my friend. And then after about 20 minutes, she said, Darlene, you even, you haven't even asked how I am. You've just been talking about yourself the whole time. And I think in the past I would have been mortified um, because that would be like, right uh in line with my triggers 
and my shame. Uh, but I just pivoted at that moment. I said, oh, you're right. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, tell me how, what's happening. You know, how are you? What's happening with you? And I, it was just a, a momentary recognition. And I didn't go into shame after mm. that. Just continue to stay present in the, it's sort of like she snapped me out of uh, your own shit. Yeah. Well, that was dealing yeah. with. Yeah. We, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you talk about your, um, your definition of, of codependency. So I've had Tion Dayton on um, who I think shares the same uh, opinion as Pia Melody that it's um, trauma-based, but so how do you define codependency? Well, I define it um, based on your relationship with yourself because I see codependency as a symptom of a lost self, a disorder of the self. So people don't have to be in a relationship to be codependent. It's the relationship with yourself that you Mm. need to recover. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the determining factor. So it's when you're, you can't access your innate self and your thinking and behavior revolve around uh, something external, whether it's a person or a drug or a process, a substance or a process. So that would include addicts such as gamblers, sex addicts, overeaters, alcoholics, uh, codependents uh, who uh, externalize their thinking and behavior around another person. So that's my definition. It's more um, has to do with your relationship with yourself because you're you've lost that connection to your true self. So in in the new book you talk about the you know the narcissist and the accommodators or I guess first question so when you're talking about narcissists in this book are you talking about people with the the personality disorder um or people who have like narcissistic qualities and do you believe that it there are certain people that have it as a personality disorder well absolutely it's uh something under 6%, you know, 2 or 3%, they say, uh, the population, some say as much as 5%, have a dis- uh, personality disorder, more men than women. Uh-huh. But the book applies to anybody. There's the definition is there. But if the person is abusive, as um, you can apply these principles. I have a lot of scripts and how to improve the relationship, how to, it's really about transforming yourself and, or how to leave it. And Uh uh so you can use this if you're involved with an addict, someone who has narcissistic tendencies, uh, someone with a borderline personality disorder, it all applies. So um, I go into the personality disorder per se, Mm -hmm, but the rest mm -hmm. of the book applies to anyone that's abusive. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that there are um, certain people with narcissism that are, they're not capable of change? Oh yeah, that's true. Like a malignant, someone with a malignant personality disorder, a, a malignant narcissistic personality disorder. Is more sociopathic tendencies. Now, I wouldn't say that they can't change. The problem is that they don't want to go to therapy and stay yeah. in therapy. And then they don't trust the therapist. And then they want to have power over the therapist. So it takes someone who's really skilled because they'll try to manipulate the therapy. But the hard part is getting them in. And then it's a long-term process. They have to stay. So most narcissists don't want to do that. And I go in, in the book, I go into the criteria of what to look for uh, to see whether you think your relationship is salvageable and, and whether how much change can be made. What would some uh, of those things be? Well, if a person is introspective, 
they're going to be more self-reflective than someone who never thinks about themselves and their behavior. And of course, narcissism exists on a scale. Mm-hmm. There's nine symptoms for NPD. Uh, you need five to qualify. Three are mandatory. But those five or nine symptoms could be mild. Someone could have an extreme uh, extreme manifestation of all nine. Someone else might just have the minimum five and maybe they're mild. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I think people, I think it's unfortunate that when you read blogs and YouTubes, you watch YouTubes on the internet, I think a lot of what you're hearing are people talking about individuals with malignant narcissism. And they'll tell you, you have to leave, there's no hope, and tell you a lot of horror stories. But that, most of the people that call me uh, are interested in working, are interested in working on the marriage. And sometimes the marriages improve, or sometimes they decide they get strong enough to leave. I feel like narcissism is just getting thrown out, you know, so much these days. And I'm sure it's not applicable a lot of the times. It's very overused. Right. Someone says, uh, people tell me, uh, I've, I, I said some mean things to my spouse and I think I'm selfish and I'm, I'm very critical. I'm afraid of my narcissist. I say, well, being selfish and critical aren't even in the description of a narcissist. And the other thing is aggression is not one of the criteria. However, the more aggressive a narcissist is, the worse the narcissism. But there are many narcissists who are not aggressive. Are there many narcissists, though, that would be afraid that there may be a narcissist? Uh, Is that counterintuitive or no? No, I don't think they'd be afraid that they're a narcissist. Either they'd deny it or they'd probably admit it or they wouldn't care. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I feel like by default, if somebody's afraid that they might be a narcissist, I feel like that means they're not one. Uh, more than likely, a lot of codependents are afraid they're narcissists because they have, going back to the example with myself, they have a lot of shame about being selfish. Mm. So, you know, and I think that they, they idealize love and relationships and being nice and being good. And that's their personality is revolves around that. So mm-hmm. even setting boundaries feels mean to them. To the to the narcissist, to the abuser. No, oh, no, to the no. codependent. I'm talking yeah, about yeah. codependent. Yeah, the codependent. I feel like setting boundaries is like mean, putting themselves first is so selfish. So it, it takes sometimes it takes a long time to for them to even value their own needs and feelings. Mm-hmm. And then some codependents are very empathetic and they're, they don't want to hurt the narcissist. They don't, they feel sorry for him or her. But that's got to all be uh, maybe c- consciously they are, but I would imagine subconsciously it has something like rooted with them themselves and their own self-belief. Right. I don't understand the question. That they're like they're empathetic, but 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 actually at the core, it's more it's selfish in a way. It's real that they're 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 doing this because of how little they think of themselves. You know. Oh yes. Like yeah. that's what the empathy is really rooted in. Right. I don't think it's necessarily selfish, but um, they end up hurting themselves, and then they're full of resentment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's more about like reaffirming those beliefs that they hold about themselves through the relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. So let me just say that um, one of the themes of the book is about changing the power dynamics mm-hmm. because um, narcissists see relationships as transactions, like a business deal. They want to get the most at the lowest cost. It's like they're shopping, okay? Yeah, like my dad. 
bargaining, okay? And um, to them, power is how they stay safe. And that's their priority. So they end up pushing people away, but underneath it's because they feel so fragile. And just and they have a lot of shame underneath. So this is the way they stay safe um, by pushing people away. So for a narcissist, their priority, as I said, is power, and they will sacrifice the relationship to get it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, codependence, their priority is relationship, connecting. They want to connect with someone. They want people to like them. And that's how they've determined they can be safe. Uh-huh. If they please their parents and their child, if their friends like them, then they will be loved and be safe. And by the way, they also have an unconscious belief that if I'm loved and liked, then I'm likable and lovable, which is a fallacy. It's not dependent on what other people think. But anyway, so they will sacrifice themselves to keep the relationship. So they are both on different tracks. The narcissist will sacrifice the relationship for power and the codependent will sacrifice themselves for the relationship. And that's how they continually give over power to the narcissist. And their codependency makes the relationship more painful for them and invites more abuse because they're constantly trying to accommodate the narcissist because they rather not make waves. They want to uh-huh. keep the peace. Uh, they waive their rights. A narcissist doesn't care about making waves. They're, they're fine with starting arguments because that's an opportunity to get power over you. Uh-huh. So you really have to understand the dynamics. And once you really understand it at a deep level, it all makes sense. And then it's much easier to detach and manage the relationship and take back your power and stop reacting. So that's number one is getting information and then not reacting and detaching and coming out of denial because a lot of people have um, a fantasy about the narcissist because it's very confusing because sometimes they could be loving and romantic and complimentary especially in the early stages of the relationship. Yeah. 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 When they're trying to rope you in and then later when they don't have to work so hard, because all that is a lot of effort because they want you to like them. uh, They stop doing that. And then their partner keeps wishing to get back to and hoping to get back to that early fantasy. And they keep trying to please and trying to get back the love that they got in the beginning. So once you realize what you're dealing with, and that's not going to come back, or once in a while it does, you might go out and have a good time, or uh, especially if you pull away, then the narcissist might be uh, kinder to you or more flattering. And those crumbs, by the way, create an addictive cycle and tell me about it (laughs) like a trauma bond it's kind of like playing a a slot machine where most of the time you lose but you keep playing to get those three cherries and get the jackpot and that's what people do and they've done research with rats and they'll keep pressing that lever even after the reward or food stops coming They've now become addicted to pressing the lever because it's called intermittent reinforcement. So it's much harder to leave an abusive relationship than it is uh, a regular one or a healthy one. Well, it's essentially a trauma bond, right? Yes. Yeah. People don't realize that. So coming out of that is letting go of an addiction. So there's when you come out of denial, you're going to go through some grief it's like hard to let go of that mm-hmm. it's not so easy outsiders say well why don't you just leave you know your husband your wife is just a jerk 
So, but it's not, they don't understand what it's like. And then you still love, you fell in love with this person and now you have this transference going on, this love that you think uh, care about the person. And it's just, it can be very hard to leave. So you, you have to go through these stages of getting information, coming out of denial, building your awareness, and then comes acceptance of reality. I talk about the three A's. It's like awareness, acceptance, and then action. Yep. Yeah, I talk about that all the time. And you have to sit in that awareness and experience the pain of awareness before you're ready to do anything about it. You know, we don't go immediately from awareness to action in a second. That's right. And it's, you come out of denial very slowly. It's it's not like, oh, you read something and then your eyes uh-huh. are open. It's, it's like just slow just burn. Just, yeah. Slow, painful and, burn. <laughs> yeah. And then acceptance. Accepting that this is a reality, you say, Oh my God, I've been in this marriage for 20 years. I've wasted all this time, and now I really understand what's been going on. And so, you know, then there's some grief about that. And to really get that you're not going to go back to how it was before you were married, you know, how the love bombing stage is not going to come back. So, there's that acceptance. You know, and also of your own participation, and that you've also allowed, played a part, allowed this to happen to you, and that your own self-esteem has suffered. So, and that maybe your children have suffered because of. So, so then, when you really get all of this, then you're really able to take uh, action. Uh, effective. Well, you could take action before, but often it's not effective. So I list. A lot of things that people do that are counterproductive, like arguing with the narcissist, you don't want to do that. Starting to justify, there's an acronym called JADE. So you don't want to justify, you don't want to argue, you don't want to defend, you don't want to explain yourself. The most effective thing is setting boundaries. And then you have to feel entitled to it. So a lot of codependents don't believe they have rights. Or if they think they have rights, they don't value them. They don't value their feelings, their needs. It's a learning process. And then you have to have the courage. And then you have to know the words. So I go through all of this in the book with a lot of exercises. It's really a workbook. And then people can uh, follow scripts. I provide scripts that you can use. And I tell them to write out what they're going to say and practice because it's not going to be easy to confront the abuse and confront the narcissist. So I always think it's better to confront in a constructive way rather than just ignore. You know, just sometimes you have to walk away, but just doing that doesn't communicate the message. There's a very specific message you want to convey that this relationship is a two-way street. And if you're going to yell at me, you know, my loving feelings go away. I don't really feel like spending time with you. That's much more powerful than just walking away. Because a narcissist will just blame you and say, what's wrong with you? I'm just like telling you how I feel. Why don't you listen? You're just They'll just make you wrong. So it's important to be able to verbalize uh, your needs and your wants and giving feedback to the narcissist because they don't understand that their behavior has an impact on you. It seems uh, pretty basic to most people, but to a narcissist, other people are an extension of themselves. They don't have good object relations that goes back to their childhood. They don't see people as individuals. They see them as like two-dimensional, like cardboard cutouts. I explain, you know, that what goes on in, in childhood and, and how that works in the book. So you have to give them feedback about the impact of their behavior. 
you know, when you belittle me, it makes me want to withdraw from you. That's much more important than just walking away. You have to let them know that their behavior impacts not, they may not care about your feelings, but they'll care if their needs aren't getting met. They want, usually they want to maintain the relationship. And that's why if you try to leave, they will try to scare you, intimidate you, like, oh, you'll never meet anyone. Uh, you'll be sorry. Uh, you won't see the children again, all these kind of things that they'll try to, uh, like, emotionally blackmail you. Why are they doing that? They don't want you to leave. But you don't see that. You just get traumatized by fear and intimidation. Well, underneath that is they don't want you to leave. It's humiliating. You know, not just leaving and, and actually saying something beforehand. I, I think it's um, for the, the individual too, right? Like that's healing and, you know, they're getting to um, set boundaries and have a voice, you know, Absolutely. For, for the, it's like yeah. empowering, you know, it's, it's, it's healing the situation. Right. And, and hopefully not. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And it's amazing. Clients tell me that they're, they're like astounded because they live in pain and feel trapped and they have so much resentment. And then they start setting boundaries and it's like, they can't believe it. They feel they're, they're not like obsessed. You know, they feel good. They feel stronger. Mm-hmm. They didn't even know it was possible to feel that way. Obviously, as a codependent, I'm not thinking in my head like, oh, I'm going to go on this date. And after one date, I'm going to make this person uh, my my world and I'm going to lose myself and just think about them and obsess about them all the time. As far as with the, the narcissist, like with like with the love bond, uh, bombing and the trauma bonding. And is that is that a conscious thought for them? Well, I really don't know what's in their mind, but um, they're motivated to make you and people like them. They're constantly um, scanning the environment, not just when they're dating, to see that, you know, people are, are going to look up to them and uh, respect them or like them. They they do a lot of what's called impression management, and I go into that also in the book. So in any environment, not just on a date, but probably on a date, especially if they're sexually attracted to you, they're going to want to woo you so that they can get their needs met. Mm-hmm. So they want you. I mean, it works both ways because codependents are they they want to be liked. They want to be asked out again, so they might not speak up when something bothers them. Yeah, like me. So I say when you're going on a date, you know, don't pay so much attention to the other person. Notice what you're feeling inside and ask for what you want. Don't be afraid to say no or set boundaries or uh, reveal what you're feeling. And if you start doing that and a narcissist doesn't like it, good riddance. You just saved yourself some grief. Be be yourself. Be authentic. I used to be a real oversharer, <laughs> which is common for adult children. <laughs> okay. Well, over, that's being authentic isn't necessary. Exactly. I know. Oversharing. Very sure it is a trauma uh, response. <laughs> okay. Um so let's talk about, and we kind of touched on this, but like the the making of a narcissist and the making of um, a, an accommodator. I can't remember if it was in one of your blogs that I was reading or something else, but it was talking about how if there is uh, like a narcissistic parent or abusive parent, that there's a small fraction of children who will identify with that parent and kind of you know, echo them in adulthood um, versus the rest. Was that, does that ring a bell? Um, well, what I'll say is that about 50% research has shown from twin studies is inherited. So 
if you have a narcissistic parent, you have a chance of becoming a narcissist. And then, of course, that parent is going to not be a model parent. So you might get um, a hereditary and environmental factor at the same time. So, and then there's other cases where there's a lot of abuse, but you can say, well, why was there a lot of abuse? Or no, I guess there's also cases where a child is overly indulged. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some theorists say that that can cause narcissism, narcissism also, where the child has never has to suffer any consequences of their mm-hmm. behavior. And you mentioned golden child. Yeah, like, yeah, the narcissist's favorite. Mm-hmm. So, They're probably more likely to turn into the, the narcissist as opposed to the one that's the black sheep scapegoat. Right. Well, I don't know which you is don't more know. likely or not. No, because yeah. the scapegoat is getting a lot of abuse. So that could happen too. I mean, they they can turn into a narcissist. Really? Well, sure. I don't know if it's the scapegoat, but uh, having abusive, an abusive parent. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I was going to ask, like, is there granted? I know that there's hereditary stuff going on, too. And but as far as um, how a child like two kids growing up um, in the same home, their how their parent treats them, like what would are there certain ways that a parent could treat a child that would be more likely for them to become the narcissist versus the one that's going to become codependent? Well, um, you have a parent that has maybe treating the children, children similarly, although there'll be going to be differences, but, uh, Meanwhile, you'll have one child that's the codependent. Well, narcissists are codependent too. So one that is an accommodator and one that turns out to be a narcissist. Some of that is personality too, mm-hmm. because um, narcissists have disagreeable personalities. And so they may gravitate, not just narcissists, but some people will gravitate to being masters and want power, not just narcissists, uh, to feel safe, and they'll be more uh, aggressive that way. And uh, other people will be more adaptable. (laughs) I wrote a blog this month called um, Individuation from Codependence, from Codependent Chameleons to Selfhood. Mm -hmm. So my mother used to say to me, Arlene, you're very adaptable. And I thought that was probably a good thing. But I had that (laughs) malleable personality. Uh, I was not. I have a sister who was much more rebellious than I. And I was amazed that she was always fighting back. That just wasn't my personality. She's not a narcissist, but Mm -hmm. we just had different personalities. So Mm -hmm. that plays a, a role also. Yeah, those personality. There's five uh, aspects of personality that are inherited. Those are hereditary. Five aspects. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So conscientiousness, agreeableness, uh, extroversion, introversion. Um, So those are some of the. uh, There's five. I can't remember all of them. Oh, um, neurotic. So if you have a covert narcissist, they're going to be uh, much more neurotic. That might have been a, an inherited trait. So and I can't think of the fifth, fifth one. So I don't think that you've touched upon this, but explain how um, a, you know a narcissist is also codependent. Oh, well, they're kind of mirror images of each other. But narcissists, share the core symptoms in my definition of codependency. So shame is 
the one of the main ones. And narcissist's whole personality is kind of a defense to sh their shame, underlying shame. And codependents have a lot of shame, and that defines their codependency. Their behavior is different. Instead of boasting, for instance, they might be uh, self-deprecating or self-sacrificing uh, because they don't feel worthy or pleasing. So the behavior may look a little different, but underneath, they both have a lot of shame and dependency on relationships. Narcissists are dependent on people to admire them. And they're trying to control people. And they like to be in a relationship. Often, uh, there are those that just want to play the field. But uh, I think the majority of narcissists like want to be in a relationship and get their needs met that way. And then denial is a symptom of both. So narcissists are in denial of their own behavior and traits. Codependents are usually in denial of their codependency. And both uh, deny their feelings, uh, a lot of their feelings and needs and childhood trauma. Control is a is a core symptom and narcissists want to control other people and codependents do that too when pleasing uh, or trying to fix people or taking care of others often they can be very critical giving advice and narcissists might just dictate what you're supposed to do they'll just be more overt about it they both have dysfunctional boundaries um, you could think of it as an imaginary line between people. Uh, they kind of divide up what's your stuff, what's someone else's. Um, it's interesting. There's kind of a mirror, converse kind of uh, comparison or contrast between narcissists and codependents because Narcissists are very uncertain of their boundaries. They don't see other people as separate from themselves, as I said. Mm. So they disregard and violate other people's boundaries all the time by controlling them, abusing them, projection, blaming them, blaming their behavior and other people. Uh, accommodators, accommodating codependents, they don't see themselves as separate from others. So they disregard themselves. Mm -hmm. You see, it's kind of the inverse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and because of their weak boundaries, they're very reactive, just like narcissists. They can be very defensive and take things personally, just like a narcissist. Uh, they have weak filters between themselves and other people. They can be very suggestible. And uh, a narcissist can be also. And then the their communication is dysfunctional. So that's a very core symptom. So typically, codependents are passive or passive aggressive. And narcissists are usually aggressive or passive aggressive. So some narcissists are kind of intellectualized and are indirect and obfuscate. Um, and Aside from their anger, it's like really challenging for them to identify and clearly state their feelings. Uh, and, and accommodators, they uh, often have shame about their anger and have trouble being direct, taking positions, confronting others. They might do it indirectly or be passive aggressive. They both have problems with intimacy. So, they sometimes they both are perfectionistic. I feel like it's a lot. I feel like it's a lot less painful to be a nar the narcissist than the codependent, in my opinion. <laughs> Same well, thing with like anxious attachers and avoidant attachers. I mean, I know that they're both messed up, but I just feel like anxious anxious attachment is a much more like grueling, painful experience. Well, yes, if you. <laughs> 
want a relationship and you can't get it, it's more painful than not wanting a relationship. Yeah. But yeah. then they may feel lonely. So yeah. it depends. I think that uh, covert narcissists suffer a lot. And I, I probably more than codependence. But again, codependency is on a continuum, just like narcissists. Yeah. 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 So as long as, especially extroverted narcissists, uh, they manage to uh, be less depressed usually than introverted or covert narcissists. And they can, their defenses are more effective. So all their bragging and all of that, that lifts them up out of their shame. But sometimes they can, when they, when things don't go well for them, when they uh, lose the, a business or their looks or uh, they feel humiliated, they can suffer quite a bit. They can go to extremes. Uh, but generally speaking, the extroverted narcissist, as long as he's successful, they kind of can stay above their shame and depression. When they feel depressed, actually, that is more hopeful because that is an opportunity for them to realize that they have shame and vulnerabilities because the last thing a narcissist wants to feel is vulnerable and negative feelings. So when they start having negative feelings and they can't project it on someone else, that's a kind of a window where they can maybe get help and go to therapy mm-hmm. if they could stay in it. One narcissist said to me, I went to therapy, this is after divorce, you know, to feel better, but I started feeling worse. And my self-esteem started going down. I had to take a drink to get through the session. Why? Because he was forced to look at himself. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think that's stay. probably a lot of people's experience. <laughs> didn't stay in therapy too long. Do you work with couples at all? Or have you? I, I do. And so um, are there is there ever um, scenarios when you have to, you know, let them know that it's just not, um, it's just not effective? That the therapy is not effective? Yeah, like if you have a narcissist who is, you know, co- completely unwilling to to look at themselves and the and the sessions are just more like harmful than helpful. Well, I don't recommend, uh, I don't like to do therapy with a, a, an extreme narcissist mm-hmm. because I don't think it's very effective. I like to work with the partner. And you can change the relationship by coaching and working with the partner. Again, that's how you change the dynamic. A relationship is a system. So I've studied systems, family systems too. And so when you change the, make a change in the dynamic, the status quo, it changes everything. It throws the whole thing off kilter. That's what you want to do. You want to let the narcissist know that the old rules don't apply and that they're going to have to make changes if they want this relationship to work. Yeah. And I would think that at first it's, I think in order to get to a place where they're able to do that, there has to be, it's similar to like your experience of, you know, being an Al-Anon for 10 years. Um, You know, the codependent has to do some, you know, inner healing themselves and work on their relationship with themselves some before they're able to start setting those boundaries and having those conversations and confronting the narcissist. Well, somewhat, but you know, I've worked with people and they can make progress. Once they have the awareness and come out of denial, they start making changes pretty quickly. That's great. Taking back their power. They don't often have to do like a lot of trauma work and, and, uh, you know, they, they start changing pretty quickly. So I, I, I saw one couple and he was a, uh, I would say a malignant narcissist. He was very violent with his wife. And, um, he had broken her, uh, some bones of hers. She still wanted the relationship. 
And uh, he was blaming her for the incident. And I turned to him and I said, I'm really surprised. I didn't know that your wife had that much power over you. He was flabbergasted. <laughs> it never occurred to him that by blaming her that he was showing weakness. Mm. So anyway, it's like sometimes couples therapy can be used, as you said, uh, for a lot of lying and uh, just blaming their partner. So um, I think it's more effective to work with each of them individually and yeah. refer the narcissist, if they're really interested in making changes, to someone who specializes in working with narcissists, which I don't. And it takes a lot of um, special training to do that. And it's difficult. Do you want to talk about your, yesterday you were mentioning that uh, a new uh, type of narcissism? That oh, used... the communal narcissism. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was coined, but it's fairly recent. And um, it's someone, first of all, they're extroverted, but they're like a do-gooder. They are often philanthropists or they're in the clergy. Uh, they want to be seen as the most liked, the kindest, the most helpful so it could be a little bit confusing because uh, you see that, oh, they're, they're not being aggressive and mean. So it could be harder to identify and they might value warmth and agreeableness and relating. Um, but, and they want to see, be seen as trustworthy and supportive. And they try to achieve this by through friendliness and being extra kind. But just like the grandiose uh, narcissist, um, they, rather than being seen as like the most powerful or the smartest or the strongest, um, they're still in it for their ego. It's really kind of an act. And it's selfish on their part. It's based on their egotistical pride. Um, and they still want to be superior to others or they feel very moralistic. This would be particularly true like in the clergy. And so they might be giving without asking permission. And when the hypocrisy of the communal narcissist is revealed, um, they, their fall is even bigger because mm. it's, it's, it's very uh, humiliating to them because there's, there's <laughs> they have this act going on that they're so uh, yeah. generous. They, and kind yeah. and they get caught that they're a fraud. Yeah. Yeah. So um I just looked it up. It was there was a paper in um to uh twenty twelve which coined the term. Oh, okay. I saw good to know. Yeah. Yeah, twenty twelve. Mm -hmm. Um well this has been lovely. Any any final comments? Um, well, just what I said at the beginning, if someone, if you think you might be being abused, don't worry about the diagnosis mm. or, yeah. uh, if you're probably, if you think you're being abused, you probably are. And it doesn't matter if someone fits the diagnosis or not. The question is, are you getting your needs met? Are you feeling respected? Is are you feeling drained or are you feeling fed in the relationship? Keep it pretty simple. So a relationship should feed you, not drain you. And relationships with uh, narcissists are draining. Mm -hmm. Or abusers. You know, it's just a lot of chaos and they come first and, and, and it's very draining. So uh, I wouldn't worry about a diagnosis. Get help. You know, get counseling. Get my book. Start doing the exercises. <laughs> the things will be clear to you. There's a lot of checklists and homework that you can do. And that in itself will create changes is the feedback I'm getting. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much.
for asking me. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that you can help you on your own journey. And as always, I know that you must have. Okay, let's be honest. Um, when are you not taking away nuggets from this pod? So go check out the show notes for all of Darlene's links to all her books. And she has a um, she has a blog called What is Codependency? And she has a shitload of of articles on there on a variety of, of topics. So I included a link down there too. I also asked her if she'd be interested in um, doing a, a workshop book, book club thing. She said she is. So uh, we're, we're going to do like a, it will be related to this book. So uh, stay tuned for more on that. Um, and what else? Uh, well, I went on a date, but He's listening to the podcast, guys, so I can't share about it. But if you want to hear about it, you can go damn the join Patreon. Um, so yeah, and um, I will see you lovely, beautiful shit shows uh, next week or on Saturday for Shit Show Saturday. It's going to be super awesome. I'm excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day, I promise. Let it all go.